because this uh, might be the, the inner chronicle of what we are and we have to articulate ourselves, otherwise we would be cows in the field. Did you know, Justin, that the thing about Tenet is that it goes backwards and it goes forward? What? <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, everyone. This is Cows in the Field. Uh, this is another movie podcast. And in this podcast, we like to follow the Werner Herzog dictum and try to articulate ourselves and articulate the philosophical themes buried in popular film. My name is Justin. I'm Laura. And today we're talking about Christopher Nolan's 2020 film, Tenet. We all believe we've run into the burning building. But until we feel that heat, we can never know. You do. You chose to die instead of giving up your colleagues. That test you passed? Not everybody does. Welcome to the afterlife. Being a bonus episode, we are going to divide this episode into two parts. The first part will be uh, a spoiler-free discussion because we expect that some of the audience may have not seen Tenet, may be on the fence about whether to see it. Then we will announce partway through the episode that we've reached the spoiler part of the discussion, in which case, if you haven't seen the movie, you can press pause and come back after. Uh, and in that part, we will get into the nitty gritty. Okay, so why do I like this movie so much? I mean, yeah, why do you? Ultimately, I'll make the case uh, for this movie on a lot of grounds, including emotional and thematic grounds. But if I think, if I'm really being honest, the reason I like this movie so much is because it is dealing with time inversion, which is, I think, one of the coolest things I've ever seen on a film. And um, let me just give you an example of how time inversion works. And um, this is not from the movie. I just wrote this story last night when I was trying to fall asleep. It's a, it takes one paragraph story. It's very short. And I think it kind of <laughs> illustrates how cool time interacting with a time inverted object is. All right. So here's how the story goes. Mm -hmm. Okay. So one day you notice something odd in the trash. And so you're investigating, you find some strips of colored canvas and you pull them out and you arrange them on the ground. And suddenly you feel the urge to destroy them. You're just like, I want these strips gone. So you take a pair of scissors to the canvas. But when you do so, it reveals something odd. Cutting the strips actually knits them together. So irritated, you cut faster and faster. But the more you cut, the more the canvas connects. And then with one final cut, you reveal that it's really a painting. It's a painting of an old man holding a paintbrush. You marvel at what happened, but you're even more intrigued by the painting itself. It's familiar in some way. So you decide, well, rather than just destroy it, you'll frame it and put it on the wall. So as the years go by and the painting becomes part of your daily life, the itch to paint starts to grow in you. So you start to take painting lessons. You think, maybe someday I could be like this guy in the painting. Well, one day then there's a knock at the door and someone has left you a box. You go and say, okay, what's inside this box? You Inside, you see it's a paintbrush and an easel. 
but it's unlike any you've ever encountered. When you pick them up, they remind you in some way of the canvas you found so many years ago in your trash. As you bring the paintbrush towards the canvas, you notice for the first time that the paint on the canvas is wet. You bring the brush to dry it, but as you do, the paint rubs off the brush. Again and again, brushstroke after brushstroke, you paint the paint off the canvas. Eventually, you're left with a blank canvas. And finally, glancing in the mirror, you realize who it was all along. There's a knock at the door, and you know what must be done. You put the paintbrush and easel back in the box, hand it to the man at the door who, without speaking, walks backwards down the street and out of sight. Wow. So that's, that's just to give you an illustration of what it's like to be a person who's moving forward through time regularly, but interacting with an object, in this case, a painting and a paintbrush that are moving backwards in time. So if you're painting with a backwards, like an inverted paintbrush, when you paint with it, you'll be pulling the paint off of the canvas. Mm -hmm. When you're destroying a canvas with scissors, you'll be creating the canvas. This is, the, this is ultimately the idea that's at the core of Tenet. And you get to see this again and again and again in this movie. And it is so cool. It's so cool to watch someone drop a bullet by having it fly into their hand. I think this idea of how when you're interacting with an inverted object, causation is reversed. That's the central idea. It's, it's not so much time inversion, but it's the interaction of a non-time inverted object with a time inverted object. That's the, fund that's the fundamentally interesting thing that Nolan is doing. and. Um, so that's the thing that I think is so visually and conceptually compelling. But as we're going to get into, there's more. And again, we're still in the spoiler-free part of the, of, the, of the episode. So other aspects of this movie, if time inversion is not your thing, it's really a movie at its core about friendship. And one of the things you're seeing is a friendship develop, but in a really unique and weird way, something we'll get into in the spoiler part of the, of the, of the podcast. Um, it's a friendship between John David Washington's character and Robert Pattinson's character. Um, and they have a real chemistry, this, these two actors. And you're getting to see how they, um, by the end of the movie, you understand uh, the structure of their friendship. Um, but it is a really... Uh, unique one, and I I find that the the uh, magnetism between these two actors like incredibly compelling. Mm -hmm. um, it's also a movie about toxic relationships. Um, there's a character played by Kenneth Branagh who's married to a character played by Elizabeth Debicki, uh, and they're in a very um, problematic, <laughs> toxic, controlling relationship. Um, and I feel like that is another point that. Um, uh, although it's played broadly and, and with, you know, very broad strokes or whatever, uh, it's, it's mirroring, I think, a real um, human thing. It's really, I don't know, do you want to say more on this? No, side? absolutely. Yeah, I think, yes, like, Sator, Kenneth Brown's character is, like, is, you know, a full-on, like, Bond villain. Um, but, but, like, what Kat is going through in that abusive relationship is something that I think is quite, um, quite common. And there's, like, what, what her, she's bringing emotionally to that film will probably resonate with a lot of people who've been in uh, toxic, controlling, uh, or just deeply unhappy relationships. I mean, I'm going to try to make the case that the central emotional core is between 
Pattinson and John David. But I think that Laura, you're going to make the case that the central emotional core is with Kat. Yeah. Like she, the, the emotional core of the movie lies with her. And so with with Debicki. So we'll we'll get into this as we get that's in spoiler land. Um, here's another pitch for the movie. It has an amazing score. Oh, I God, mean, the score, the score is, is so propulsive. Um, past guest Bilga Abiri wrote a, an entire article on uh, the the how amazing the score is and how you can't stop listening to it. And um, I feel exactly the same way. There are some incredible lines in this movie, one of which is Aaron Taylor Johnson saying... Temporal pincer movement. Yeah, that's Laura's favorite, favorite line of all time, so I wanted to give you that line. Nobody told. They're running a temporal pincer movement. A what? The pincer movement. But not in space, in time. Uh, oh my God, I love it. What does that remind so you of, much. Laura? Okay, so... We watched this Vice video, this dumb Vice video, like, I don't know, a year and a half ago or something, with these, like, guys with Cockney accents who eat nettles. Competitive. Competitive, competitive nettle, nettle eating. Nettle eating, right. Because I guess nettles, like, sting when you touch them. So it's, like, a very uncomfortable experience to eat nettles. Anyway, these weirdos are doing that. Um, but at one point, the interviewer says, you're a bit of a legend in the nettle game. And we have been saying that to each other for a year and a half. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, you're a bit of a legend in the nettle game. Well, yes, I'm the record holder, world record holder in nettles. <laughs> and um, imagine somebody who talks like that, um, but also has like a mask on. And then also like for half of the movie. And then also maybe like the mix is such that you like have no fucking clue what he's saying all the time. That's what's happening in this movie. And it's amazing. It's, it is very cool. <laughs> um, one last pitch is that it... Um, it, in a in a weird way, it is a uh, climate change movie, much like Interstellar, and um, mm -hmm. it's it's a you know you know it's clearly made by a parent who is deeply concerned about the future of the planet. Yeah, yeah. When Sator says like my greatest sin was bringing a son into the world that I knew would end, I was like, oh yeah, that um that one hit home for me. Yeah. <laughs> so. Okay, so speaking of sons, I'm going to say, and this is right before we're about to go to spoilers, but I want to give a tidbit of it before if anyone turns it off. Um, so I think, and I'm about to make the case, that the central organizing lens or theme through which we should see the movie is as a father-son movie. Okay, now, um, at this point, you might be thinking, what? Um, and that's fine. And um, uh, now at this point, we're going to go into spoilers. So um, now if you haven't seen the movie and you, I would really encourage you to just watch it and don't don't listen to this because we're you want to see it with fresh eyes. And 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 again, it will bear out multiple viewings, I think. Um, OK, so now we're going to enter into spoiler territory. Um, OK, so I said that the uh, movie is about a father son relationship. And you might think, well, who are the father and who are the son? Well, we do have a father and a son in this movie. We have Sator and we have Max, his son. Um, but this is not really their story. They're never in the same scene. They're mm -hmm. never, ever seen together. This is not their story. Well, who else has kids? Well, Kat has a kid. It's Kat's son, uh, um, Max. Um, but she's not a father. No. The father here that I'm talking about is the protagonist, John David Washington, and the son is Neil, played by Robert Pattinson. Okay, so here's why, um, here, here's, the, here's the basic idea. So if you go to the end of the movie and Neil says, 
for me, this is the end of a beautiful friendship. So what we've learned at that point is that John David Washington goes on to found Tenet in the future, and he ends up recruiting Neil into the organization and mentors him. So now, no, once we learn that, that explains a lot of stuff, explains a bunch of plot contrivances that would otherwise be huge, just like deus ex machina stuff. Why does Neil know how to reverse bungee jump? Why does he know how to speak Estonian? Why does he have a <laughs> master's degree in physics, right? Well, John David Washington knew he would need to know all these things. So in the future, when he's recruiting him, he, te- he makes sure that he knows those things. Um, now, that's just the first step. Now, presumably, we think young Neil here is being, you know, he's interacting with John David as an older man, right? He's aged and he's, you know, become he's not his spry self that we see. Um, so he's he's the mentor to, to Neil. But I think he's also his father. Why? Well, there's some reason to think that Neil's biological father is actually Sator, that Neil is, in fact, Max. Now, here's the evidence for this. And this is not uh, my, this is not, this is, I'm just taking from, from stuff that's been circulating in the internet. Um, so the first uh, piece of evidence is that Pattinson dyed his hair blonde, which to make it look like Kat's son, Max, and also Debicki has blonde hair. Um, and the other piece of evidence is that Max, his full name would be Maximilian, the last four letters of which are L, I, E, N, which you reverse them as Neil. And then people have pointed that out online. So there's, there's some reason to think that Max, namely the son of Cat, who she's trying to save, is in fact Neil. Okay, so if that's right, then what you're seeing is that John David Washington, at the end of the movie, is basically recruiting Neil, but when he sees Max, he's recruiting Max into Tenet. And maybe he's even marrying Kat. I mean, who knows, right? He's, you know, whatever he's doing, he's becoming either a father, an adoptive father, or a father figure to, to Max uh, slash Neil. Um, if that's right, then now sort of, now we can think about how Neil sees uh, the protagonist, John David Washington. Well, he sees him as this amazing badass. He knows all this stuff. He's got all these wild stories, but he's also an old man, right? So for Neil... These are just stories, right? He, he's, been, he's heard like all these exploits that, that, that uh, the protagonist got up to. But then he learns that he's going to invert and go back to meet his father as a young man and get to see him in his prime. And, but he can't reveal any of this, of course, because he never did. And so their relationship is a father-son relationship, except the classical relationship of a father to son is inverted. Here, it's the son who ends up being the mentor to the father, at least on screen. Mm-hmm. Um, although John David mentors Neil off screen, on screen, it's the other way around. Neil knows all of, he, he's part of Tenet, right? He knows everything. He knows the protagonist. He, he's met him before. He knows all these facts about him, but he can't tell him. So this explains why their relationship is so unusual at the beginning of the movie, right? They're just like, Neil comes in and, and he's, he's a little bit tipsy at first, mm-hmm. right? And Laura was wondering, well, why is he, why is he actually drinking in, uh, you know, in, the, in the middle of the day? Yeah, when- it's a noon meeting in Mumbai. And, well, I also thought it was, that never seems to be a character trait ever again for exactly. the movie. He's so competent. He's so put together. He's so blasé. I was like, why is he all rumpled in this first scene? It doesn't make any sense. Except... Then if you think about him being nervous to meet his like his father as a young man, yeah. like that that would be a little 
like exciting, but unsettling. Unsettling. And he doesn't know how he's going to react. And he doesn't know how his father is going to react to him. I mean, he's never done this before. And yeah. so he's trying to feel it out. And um, so what I think is so interesting about this is that you get to see a relationship develop over the course of the film. That's a weird one-sided relationship, but it's often, that's what parental relationships often are. They're one-sided. The, the parent knows more than the child. They are the one who has to withhold information from the child. Right, they have to sort of meet out information yeah. as it becomes appropriate. Yeah, as it becomes appropriate, exactly. <laughs> and that's exactly what Neil does because again, Neil being the son, now the relationship is inverted. So Neil, the son, is the one who ha is, has to withhold the information and sort of meet it out as, as needed. Um, which he does again and again. He lies or at least is not honest, fully honest with the protagonist. Um, and when when the protagonist gets angry at him for this, he says, well, it wouldn't have really done any good for you to know that then, which is exactly what a parent would have said to a mm -hmm. child in that circumstance. Yeah. I love to when you said so that's what's so wonderful about rewatching this movie. There's a lot of things that are wonderful about rewatching it again and again, but watching Robert Pattinson's performance as Neil and how he threads that needle mm -hmm. is so good. But there seems, he has these like knowing smiles a couple times in the movie. It almost seems too as if like, because he knows who his father will eventually be. Yeah. And it at times he feels like he's sort of like playfully nudging him in that direction. Because um, when we see, when we see the protagonist, he has just come off his stint of being with the CIA. And he's kind of stiff and like incredibly isolated. And he says things like standard operating procedure. And at one point, Neil kind of like parrots that, like almost laughingly, like standard operating procedure, like ha ha ha. Because that's not who presumably the protagonist will become. It's mm -hmm. not really like the father figure that Neil knows very well. Um, and at the very end, when he asks, are you going to go check on Kat? And, you know, and the protagonist says, well, no, that's far too dangerous because that would be how the CIA would approach it, maybe. Mm -hmm. And Neil kind of gives him the smile and is like, not even from a distance, because, of course, Neil knows he's going to. He's going to more than check up on them. He's mm -hmm. going to become a part of their family. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but he's got the smile where he's just like, it's just fun. It's like it's, um, you know, you said this is an aversion of, of the father son story in every way, but it's it's also like. It's like the, um, you know, the inversion of how I met your mother. Like mm -hmm. he knows his parents love story before they do. Mm -hmm. That's so funny. Yeah. <laughs> I, and he's almost nudging him that way. It's almost like he's like planting the seed for, for the protagonist to go visit. Kat, yeah, yeah. You know, which, you know, maybe that's a close causal loop. Maybe not. I don't know. But like, mm -hmm. it's just, it's cute. That also reminds me. Um, uh, one thing that you've been pointing out to me as we watch the movie is that the journey of the protagonist, the arc, the character arc of the protagonist is one from someone who has an affiliation to a cause that he doesn't understand. But it's this global, like, big, it's the stakes are so high. It's the world. It's everyone. But it's impersonal. He doesn't have any mm -hmm. personal connection to anything. He just is, well, I got to save the world, obviously. But his journey is to the end of the film, finally having that personal connection to neil to cat and it, that's his journey is to find is to kind of overcome that uh that standard operating procedure thing and right. become more of an emotionally connected person right yeah absolutely okay i want to zoom out slightly and um contextualize this film within 
the broader context of at least two other Christopher Nolan movies. And the other ones I want to talk about are the the two other big budget sci-fi epics. So this would be Inception and Interstellar. Now, the context here, basically the claim I want to make is that this parental father to child relationship is, I think, a through line between these three movies. It's an evolving relationship and it mirrors exactly Christopher Nolan's relationship to his own children. Okay, so start out with Inception. And here we have the experience of being a new parent put to film. And in, per in particular, one aspect of being a new parent that Laura and I, I think, are intimately familiar with is that you're, you're so close to the time before you were a parent that you still have these memories and almost desires to return to oh, that yeah, time. Oh, yeah, totally. That's a feeling, I think, that's very um, apparent to new parents. Um, but it's also one that I think new parents feel a lot of guilt about. Mm -hmm. In particular, um, you know, you want to have time away from your kids, but you feel guilty when you're away from your kids. And I guess it's a twofold thing. It's simultaneously the pull to want to be back with your children and your family. And, but it's also the guilt of desiring to be away from them at the same time. That's the twofold thing. And what happens in Inception is that you have two characters, Cobb and Mal, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and Marion Cotillard, who are experimenting with this kind of multi-layer dream thing where they're able to spend longer and longer stretches of time together in a dream, but that only takes a short period of time in reality. That's how that sort of time dilation works in the dream state. So it turns out that eventually they go deep enough in their dreams so that they can spend an entire lifetime together. Uh, that's only been like a couple hours of daytime, right? Of actual time. And so then they wake up out of this situation and what do they find? They're, it's, imagine, I mean, just imagine that you lived an entire life, uh, you know, away from your children. You've pursued all of your creative ambitions and so on. Uh, and you wake up and they're screaming kids, <laughs> you know? And you're like, oh my God, my life, my life is incredibly boring, mundane life filled with like responsibilities to these ungrateful little demons you know <laughs> and i could imagine that you would feel an immense amount of guilt for that how much you loved the the feeling of being away from them for that mm -hmm. i mean for years and years um and i think that that is the guilt for me that is the most the more interesting guilt at the core of inception of course there's also this guilt of you know Cobb feeling guilty that mal killed himself killed herself because of his idea but I think that's that's on the surface. I think the, the, the sort of deeper guilt is this relationship that he has to his kids and the guilt that he feels for wanting to be away from them. Um, okay, so again, it, father to child relationship being at the core. Interstellar, now this is the one that's really easy because Interstellar is very clearly and obviously a father to daughter relationship. But what I think is interesting is that now that relationship has grown. Now they Now the kids have grown a bit. Um, now we have Cooper, Matthew McConaughey, and he's, you know, been a parent for a while. He's got Murph, who's, I don't know, preteen, basically. Um, so he's not like, you know, he has some pull to his old life, but it's not the same, you know, he's not feeling guilt about it because he doesn't feel like there is any life to go back to. What he feels guilt about and his relationship is about what he can tell Murph, his daughter, 
about the truth of what's happening. The world is ending. The only way to solve it is if he gets on a ship, goes far, far away, and may never return. And how, do, how does he convey that to her? He doesn't. He just sort of says, well, I'm going to be back and I'm coming home and, you know, I'll keep... I mean, Murph is so confused that when uh, Brand, the um, played by um, uh, Sir, Michael, Sir Michael Caine, oh. drives oh. the truck back, Murph thinks he's back. Right. Murph's like, is he come back? Because she's so... She thought maybe he would only be gone for like a day, you know, like he didn't convey in, in in clear enough terms, partly because he didn't want to saddle her, burden her with that information, the uh, the magnitude of the uh, of the situation. And so so he deceives her. Of course, deceit is another thing that's played out in that movie. You have Brand, Professor Brand deceiving his daughter, Amelia and the rest of the world that he can't solve the gravity equation. Right. He, he says he can, but he really can't. And um, so here, the, the parental relationship is one where there's a kind of inevitable failure. Like you are doing your best to protect these people you love, who you don't think can handle the enormity of the situation. So you deceive them, but then you feel guilt about the fact that you've deceived these people for their own sake. And, and this plays out with the relationship of Murph to her father, where she has to go through this experience of whether to forgive him or how she grows with that and so on. So again, it's a relationship of um, that's growing, a relationship that that changes and you know the it you know goes into adulthood and so on. Um, okay, so so now we've seen two uh, uh, sort of parent-child relationship movies. Tenet now, unsurprisingly is takes the parent-child relationship and inverts it. And that's what we're seeing is that now you have the relationship of the parent to child. Now the, chi the child is an adult. And what happens when a child becomes an adult is that that's when the relationship inverts. The adult is now dependent on the child. As the adult gets older, needing elder care and so on, the child is less dependent on the adult. And in fact, the child is teaching the adult about stuff, teaching the adult about technology. How to use the iPad. Exactly, right. yep. that kind of thing. It, the, the whole relationship has been inverted, much like the main theme of the movie. Hey, you never did tell me who recruited you, Neil. I only guessed by now. You did. Only not when you thought. You have a future in the past. Years ago for me, Years from now for you. You've known me for years. For me, I think this is the end of a beautiful friendship. But for me, it's just the beginning. We get up to some stuff. You're gonna love it. You'll see. The whole operation's a temporal pincer. Who's? Yours. You're only halfway there. I'll see you at the beginning, friend. So I think that that is one of the key ways of thinking of this movie is really can be thought of as a thematic trilogy about the evolution of the parent-child relationship going from young parenting in inception to sort of, you know, parenting, you know, I don't know, adolescence in Interstellar, finally parenting adults in Tenet. I was thinking too about like the Neil protagonist thing and, and about adult uh, relationships with your parents um, and and parent relationships with their children, but like 
So when we're at the end of the movie, Neil has already had a long relationship with the protagonist. And this is the end of that journey for him. And it's the beginning for the protagonist. He's only known Neil for like a week. Mm -hmm. So he's got years and years and years to know Neil, Max, Neil, whatever. But I was thinking in terms of the parallel there with the children and parents that you're pointing out, like if you're a 20-year-old person... Your parents have had a very active, conscious parenting relationship with you for 20 years, Mm. like before you were conscious, right? Like there's so much parenting stuff that's happening right now with you and me that we are never going to forget with our kid. And like, he has no idea. He has no idea. That's right. He has no idea. And then when they're kids and teenagers, they're taking all that for granted. Mm. You know, I don't think they're really, unless they're like railing against their parents, you know, my my mom doesn't let me do that. My friend's mom was, but like, I don't think they're, I don't think I certainly as a child and as a teen was not that conscious of the kind of like sacrifices, choices, parenting things that my parents were doing for me. I was more of a thinking about like what they allowed me to do and didn't allow me to do, (laughs) you know, like when my curfew was. And then, and so like that relationship maybe doesn't consciously start for me until I'm an adult. And then I'm actually thinking about my relationship. Um, So it's sort of like the starting point is different for me than it was for my parents. Mm who have been consciously thinking about their relationship with us. And then maybe, I, you know, don't think about me as much day to day now, right? Mm-hmm. I'm gone. I've lost the, I've left the nest, <laughs> you know, like the sort of heavy lifting has already happened for them. And the heavy lifting, you know, sadly, there may be some heavy lifting in my future, right? As That's my right. parents age. As a, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, it's also, you know, um, it's interesting too, in that part, one aspect of, the aging process is the loss of memory. Right. And um, not for everyone, but uh, for, for many. Um, and, you know, losing that relationship, that relationship, then the burden to maintain that relationship goes to the child rather than the adult. So that's another component of it where in a weird way, although John David is, Washington's character is very young <laughs> then, but he doesn't know. He's he's like the adult at the end of the relationship who doesn't know the child and, and anymore. And he's mm-hmm. going to find out who the, mm-hmm. who the child is, right? And I like to, I don't know that there's a lot of the themes of Inception in this, but there's certainly the same, you know, there's the resonance with Interstellar in terms of Neil, as you pointed out, like withholding certain information and 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 sort of having to kind of thread that needle. Yeah. You knew it was me coming out of that vault. Why didn't you say? It's a lot of explaining when someone's about to put a bullet in the brain. But afterwards, things the same. I knew it'd be okay. It's happened, it's happened. If I told you and you acted differently, who knows? Policy is to suppress. Whose policy? Ours, my friend. We're the people saving the world from what might have been. So um, I don't think that Nolan has had like a super strong history with with his lady characters. I think his most compelling characters have and his most compelling protagonists have tend to be tend to be men. Um, but I think Kat is really great as a par- character. I'm really excited about her. I was thinking about this because you told me I'm not on film, film Twitter. I don't know what people are saying about this movie. You just tell me what people are saying about this movie. But apparently people are rolling their eyes at a particular cat line. Um, it's after Neil warns that if the algorithm is brought together and the future people are able to successfully invert the world, 
that everybody and everything that has ever lived will be destroyed instantly. And Kat says, including my son. Yeah. So that's the one everyone laughs at and thinks. <laughs> and they say, yes, obviously, follow, <laughs> it follows as a logical deduction of everyone will die that your son will die as well. Okay. Yeah. My response is, shut up. Is that following the, the Werner Herzog dictum to articulators? I think that's right. I think Werner would be okay with Maybe, that. Maybe saying, yeah. shut up. No, I mean, I think, I think that's so silly. I mean, obviously, okay, yes, obviously logic stands that her son would also die if everybody in the world dies instantly. But I think what we're not what we're not appreciating is that Kat is being really human in that moment. I think like just at a surface level, how else do we understand abstractions in the world besides at the like personal with our personal experiences with our, our personal relationships? Um I think, you know, when something devastating is going to happen to a large amount of people, you think about the people you love the most and mm -hmm. how that's going to affect them. Right. When we think about climate change, you and I and how like the world is going to change. I think about what that means for our son. Yeah. Yeah. I'll give you another example. Um, you know, there've been a lot of wildfires in California and one of them took uh, my parents haven't lived there for a while, but their their old house was burned down in one of them a few years ago. And when I concentrate on that, that makes it much more palpable and immediately present than when I just think of the statistic, like right. 60,000 homes burned. I'm like, well, that's a lot of homes. But then I think about that home that I used to live in and spend a lot of time in. And, and then I see the pictures and it's gone. And I go, whoa, that's like, it feels so much more um, real. Yeah, of course. I mean, I think, and storytellers know that, right? Like that's why Spielberg colors the coat in, in Schindler's List. That's why there's a love story at the center of Titanic. Because if we just watched a hundred people hundreds of people die on a boat for two hours, like that would not have the same resonance yeah. as watching Rose lose Jack, you know? And I, and you know, in terms of like prejudice, right? The data shows that if you, a person holds prejudice beliefs about a group of people, if they come to meet and get to know a person that has that characteristic, they're, you know, prejudiced against, but be it race or sexual orientation or whatever, that can help change their mind more than any other type of logical argument with them about, you know, about tolerance. Like if they actually, if they think they, you know, don't like gay people. And then they meet somebody who's gay, who's a human being that that actually does make a difference. Yeah. It's one of the few things that can make a dent in that, in that kind of prejudice. So I think when Kat says, including my son, she's just responding the way that literally we all do. It's just that she's saying it out loud. And maybe it sounds silly when it's in a movie and said out loud, but I just think it's like deeply human mm. and normal. So that's my rant on that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But I think what's more yeah. interesting about that is like, what, how we're setting up the contrast between Kat's perspective and her motivations and the protagonists. Um, cause I actually think like the protagonist is a total weirdo here in that, you know, he's totally committed to the fate of an abstract comment, uh, concepts of like the fate of the world and people out there and future generations, right? Like he does seem to be animated by like statistics, as you said, mm. more than his personal relations because it seems like he doesn't have any, you know? And, you know, he seems to maybe like, actually consciously avoid having personal relations with them because they get in the way of what he goes there to do um you know that's the test that, that he passes that's the test, that, yeah. that he, he just he'll sacrifice himself yeah. for anyone he it doesn't, doesn't value he doesn't, his own life he doesn't right? even know these guys they're just his team yeah right um and you know Seder calls him a fanatic for that he's like he's devoted to something he doesn't really even understand and he says shit like standard operating procedure and he admits that he's willing to take out women host and take a woman hostage he's willing to 
put Kat in further danger, you know, for his own goals, because as he understands it, like, you know, he's trying to prevent World War Three. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's a pretty good, you know. It's a great motivation. I'm just saying it's not how most people work. So meanwhile, Kat is on the complete extreme end of things. Mm. You know, she's completely and utterly focused on the circumstances surrounding her and her son. And she cares about nothing else. Um, and she's explicit about that. But and I think, you know, as I already expressed, I think that's a little bit that's, you know, pretty universal to think that way. But I also think it's like her tunnel vision is a symptom of being in an abusive relationship. And, you know, her life is a living hell and she's completely consumed by but what's like been sort of emotionally wrought upon her. She's by her own anger and her misery and her desperation to be with her son and also her desperation to be free of Sator and the way that those conflict with one another and her right. shame and maybe even being tempted to be away from her child yeah. so that she can be free of Sator. Yeah. She has no emotional energy left for anything else. Yeah. She could not really give a shit about the future generations of the world right there. And I don't blame her for that. <laughs> you know, she's just trying to survive. Yeah. And that's a good point. Actually, can I just on that yeah. point that like her her initial clash with the protagonist on the boat is over exactly yes. that. Yes. She's like, why did you save him? Because this is just to put the context. Uh, she has tried to kill Sator by loose letting him off, flying him off the boat. Right. And so he drowns. But the protagonist saves Sator. And she's like, why did you do that? Like, I need I want to get him out of here so that I could be free of him. And and John David is like, well, I need him. I need him. And it's about more. He, she's like, I know he's a bad guy. And you're obviously, you know, working with you've got some big plan and everything. But like and he's like, well, it's bigger than all that. Right. It's bigger than you can imagine. And, you know, and but she's just like, yeah, but like I got a circumstance, too. Like I yeah. got a bad situation, too. Right. Right. Yeah, they're they're sort of teaching each other because she does mm. come to help, right? So he's like, it's bigger than that. It's bigger than you. It's so much. He's so much more than you think than the yeah. dad guy he think he is. And meanwhile, later, Kat says when she does become on board, right? She becomes a, a pivotal part of the plan. She keeps Sador from killing himself so that they can, like, you know, take apart the algorithm again. She says, um, "The chance to save my son, you can't know what that means to a mother." And it, he doesn't know what that means. He's mm -hmm. not. He will know mm -hmm. soon enough, you know, when he becomes a surrogate father. But he he really doesn't understand that human experience. Um, and she is not in a place to be able to sort of understand his perspective either. But mm -hmm. they're meeting in the middle. Yeah. You don't see it happen, but you know that it will happen because you know that there's more to come um, yeah. in the story of Tenet. Um, but yeah, so I, I think that's all really cool. And I think for me, I mean, I love the first half of this movie, actually. <laughs> I thought like the setup was really fun. Um, but as soon as she sits down at that dinner table and starts telling her story to the protagonist, really raw and vulnerable um, about, you know, the living hell that she has that she has with her with her husband and this failed attempt at betrayal that now has like completely shackled him, shackled her to him. I was all in on this movie from that moment. I think Debicki's incredible in it. And I love the cat character. She's complicated. You know, she's proud, too. Like, she's desperate. But she says, like, oh, I don't need your redemption. You know, <laughs> she's and I love, too, that, you know, she kills Sator on her own terms. Like, mm -hmm. and she's just like, fuck it. Those boys can figure it out for themselves. <laughs> you know, like, she's like, I'll hear it. I'm helping, helping a little bit, but you guys are taking too long. And I'm not going to rub sunscreen on this guy's back anymore. <laughs> Have you ever tried to rub sunscreen <laughs> on somebody's back you don't like? It's really gross. Uh, wait, wait, and that sound. The sound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry if that was too much, 
too much in the mic. Um, but no, it was, yeah, the sound effect is hysterical. The Foley on that is like real strong, but mm. <laughs> yeah, like, I think she's just like, fuck it. Like I played your game for a little bit, but like, no, 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 no. I can't have him think he won. Like I have to have yeah, yeah, my, yeah. this is her time. My, it's my time, yeah. you know, like, I think that's great. I love her. She's strong and she's sassy and she's proud. Um, but she's also like destroyed. It's great. She's complicated. I also just like that it's really her and Laura, right? The science lady scientist. Mm-hmm, Those are mm-hmm. kind of the lady characters. Basic. There's also the woman who who leads the other yeah, the yeah. Ives counterpart yeah. part, yeah. right? Hi, it's Laura here. Quick apology. The scientist, lady scientist is named Barbara, not Laura. Clearly, that was wishful thinking on my part. I read an article that called the scientist Lady Laura many, many times. But not Laura. I checked it on IMDb yeah. and on Letterboxd. This is Clemens Posey we're talking Clemens about. Clemens Posey. Yeah. Her name is Barbara. Um, but I like that we've got Laura and Kat who are both like sort of like uh, two people that are have committed their lives to studying materials and trying to understand where they come from in time, in space and time. I mean, it's cool. I think it's cool, right? Like Kat's job is to analyze works of art and assign it value. And a huge piece of that valuation is how old it is yeah. and where it's been. It's yeah. provenance, right? Yeah. And, and its origin. Its origin, right. Mm-hmm. Exactly, right. Which is, you know, based on, you can, you how do you determine its origin besides the style of the, of the hand, right? Is mm-hmm. its age. <laughs> um, and so she's using x-ray technology and stuff to try and understand, like try to like trace the paper's movement through time, mm-hmm. right? And then meanwhile, Laura is like trying to trace the bullet's movement through time, but mm-hmm. from the future, mm-hmm. those objects are inverted. Um, but I, I just like those two little, those two science ladies. Her like is just sort of audible so side bored. when he asks her like, so I need to know the stakes here. He like comes <laughs> in and he's all like, all right, so give me the stakes, lady. She's just like, okay. It's World, it's World War, III. War III. Okay. God. <laughs> she's like, you more. ask a lot yeah, of questions. Stop asking questions. <laughs> she's uh-uh. just like j- dunking her tea bag and like giving him the stink eye. <laughs> <laughs> Like, I can I go I, back to analyzing I, my metal think, alloys yeah, now? I think at one point he like asked her, he's like, where'd this come from? She's like, I don't know. I just got to sign this stick of like this chunk of wall. <laughs> it was just my assignment, this chunk of wall. I didn't get any answers to the questions. Stop asking me stupid questions. <laughs> I I think this movie is really funny in places. I don't, I think it's intentional. I yeah, no, we'll go. I mean, I don't know we'll, if that. If we'll talk about, is... we'll, we'll do a couple, we'll do a funny recap. Okay, okay. We'll do a funny recap cool. at the end. Um, All right, that's my moment th- on Cat. Good pitch on Cat. Thank and you. I, I think that, you know, especially when you think of it in the context of Christopher Nolan and his uh, sometime, you know, sometimes uh, less than Dead stellar wives. diversity among oh. his cast, in particular among, you know, not having many female leads. Uh, and, yeah. And, He's uh, got a lot of dead wives in those movies. Yeah. Okay. So point taken, right? But 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 so <laughs> no, then to have Cat's a awesome. strong female pro- character who is um in in many respects uh I mean she's not like fighting like the protagonist, but she's in the mix, you know. She's, I think it's a, I think this movie's a three hander. Yeah, all good points. Yeah, I um, saw some article on Vulture that said like she was sort of that Debicki's character is saddled with like this like arbitrary emotional arc of like it's the only emotional arc of the movie and it's like stupid because she cares about her kid more than the rest of the world and i'm like this that yeah all see, the, everything about that see, that makes me I, angry yeah but that's what i mean about the, these takes on this movie were like 
you know, they saw the movie Monday and they had to write the review in, in you know, less than 24 hours and they couldn't go back and rewatch it. What are you going to do? Like, it's very hard. I think, it, I think it propelled a lot of people to write very surfacey, you know, criticism of this movie. And it's very easy to criticize on the surface. Like all Nolan movies are incredibly easy to criticize on the surface. On the surface, you're just like, this is stupid. It doesn't make any sense. There's no emotions. There's no characters. <laughs> Everyone's just like an archetype, like literally an in inception. It's like director, editor, producer, right? Like those are the characters. Basically this movie, the character's name is the protagonist. Like there's so much. And he says, I'm the protagonist, right? There's so many things where it's like, this is self parody. Yeah, but he says it cool. He's like, I'm the protagonist that's of true. this story. That's true. fucking cool, man. <laughs> Um, but, but, but I think that's all so easy. It's like, don't reach for the, e well, I shouldn't get on my high horse. Here, but it, it's such <laughs> We both easy, had our rants now. It's such an easy uh, critique. It's like, dig a little deeper, right? Like, like, uh, like Eames says, don't be afraid to dig a little deeper. Dream a little bigger. Right? He says that in Inception. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. All I was right. just thinking about how Eames and Ives are similar names. So speaking, speaking of, of digging a little bit deeper, there is this interesting feature of John David Washington's performance, which is that and character, which is that his character has no name. He has not really any personality. He also, I mean, he has a personality in the sense that he's quippy and he's stuff. He's sassy but, and he has, he likes words. Yeah, but he has no clear backstory, mm -mm. no clear motivation for what he's doing. Why is he willing to sacrifice himself? We don't know. We have no, no idea. That okay. cracked me up, by the way, the part where like <laughs> when he first gets introduced to the word tenant and he's like, I quit. And then the, the guy's CIA's just like, Here's guy, the he's like, well, I have this new thing for you. Uh, the state, it's all about, you know, what is it like the fate of the world? And John David Washington's just like, what is it? I'm in. He just quit. He just quit. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. So easy criticism is like, um, okay, well, he, this is like underdeveloped writing or something, mm -hmm. right? Okay, fine. But as, but when you dig into it, you start to see, okay, well, what is it like to in interact with an inverted object? Okay, so to drop an inverted bullet is to hold out your hand and have the bullet fly back into your hand, right? That's what, it, that's what it's like. It's cause and effect are reversed. What you're seeing first is the, is the effect, the bullet being there, and you're first, and then you see the cause. The cause comes from your perspective after the effect. So what we're seeing in this movie, oh, here, I'll give you another example of this. So when, when, when he first exits the airlock and, and he's inverted, the puddle starts to move before his foot even raises to go step in it, right? You're seeing again the effect of him stepping in the puddle before the cause. So what's, John, what's happening with John David Washington's character? Well, so normally if you're, if you're just interacting in a normal way with, with the world, the cause would precede the effect. So the cause of joining Tenet would be like, oh, I don't know, um, uh, I this thing happened to me and it made me really care about time inversion or whatever. And then I like get, I get into tenant and that's what like gets me into it. But here the cause and effect are reversed. So him being pulled into tenant is actually being caused by him in the future, pulling in a certain respect, him as the bullet in this case, back into his hand, namely tenant. Why, how he's doing that is he's planting all of these obstacles and problems and characters for him to interact with, to pull him in. So he's drawn ultimately into this inevitable future outcome by the forces of reverse causation. And so I think that explains, I think, to some extent why um, he just willingly goes along with everything that's happening. In a way, it's familiar in some weird way, just like if you were to 
sort of have dropped a bullet and that by that flying back into your hand, you would have to have like formed the intention of dropping it, you know, but again, you're going to drop it in reverse, right? So it's that same thing of like, somehow that that causation is inverted. And so he's being pulled along and he can't really understand it or explain it, but he's just going with it. I think the other thing that's interesting about that is it explains a little bit to why he has no name or backstory because what we're seeing is his backstory we're seeing the backstory of who he will eventually become namely the founder of tenet so in a way he is this blank slate at this point in his like career as a character um and um but we don't know that so that's why when the first time you watch the movie you're thinking this is very weird like this guy has no name he doesn't have any story what's going on how am i supposed to figure out who he is and I think the answer is, you're learning who he is. He's becoming who he is, in a way. And I, I think that fits with the, the overall theme of the movie. Okay, so uh, another thing that I want to talk about is um, the metaphysics behind Tenet. Um, in particular, um, the picture of time that the movie presupposes, which is basically um, a kind of block universe picture. So the idea here is that time is really understood as a fourth dimension uh, among all the other spatial dimensions. You have three spatial dimensions, you have a fourth temporal dimension. And um, so moving in time is then analogous to moving in space. Um, If you were to imagine the the block kind of arrayed from a sort of atemporal perspective, you could move, you know, left, right, up, down, and so on. But then there'd be a temporal dimension as well. Of course, um, when you take that atemporal perspective, you you sort of see everything, all space and all time, unchanging. You just see it as it is, just for all time. And um, I think that dovetails with Neil's line that he says throughout the movie and then repeats at the end of the movie mm-hmm. where he says, um, what's happened's happened. What's happened has happened. Um, and I, I so I think that that is, um, that's sort of the, the ultimate picture of the movie. And this is something I want to come back to actually about um, you know, John David actually says at one point, um, this reversing the flow of time, doesn't that mean that if, if we're here, we've, we've already succeeded. <laughs> and, um, and he's right, I think, on this picture. In a, in a sense, the fact that time was never inverted shows it will never be inverted. Uh, and so they have already succeeded. But then as Neil points out, that's not an excuse to do nothing. It, it just means it's an expression of faith in the mecha- mechanics of the universe. It's you still have to play your role within this greater scheme. Um, one question that comes up, though, um, in this picture is whether the characters have free will mm, in such a mm-hmm. universe. Um, and so take, take, for instance, Neil at the end of the movie. So Neil knows that he was the one who picked the lock for uh, Ives and the protagonist uh, at that final um, underground layer or whatever. Yeah, whatever he, that is. <laughs> he realizes that he's like, oh, okay, that was me in there. Um, so now at that point, he knows he has to go back and, um, and you know, invert and then pick that lock and, and help them. Now, um, you might think at this point, does he have free will? Can he choose to not do that? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the answer to that is, well, yes and no. Of course, he will do it. So, in a, in, I mean, will here is, is, is weird. He will, from the temporal perspective of where they are moving forward, 
sorry, from his temporal perspective moving forward, he will do it. Of course, that what he's going to do is in the past. Right. So right, from like protagonist perspective, he already did he it. He already did it. Exactly. Right. Um, so it's already happened. But you might wonder, well, 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 can he not do it? That's the sense you might wonder about whether he has free will. Um, and now in a block universe, there is no indeterminacy with respect to the future because the, the past and the future are all the same. They're all laid out equally. So there's no asymmetry between the past and the future in this regard, where the future is determinate. Sorry, the past is determinate and the future is indeterminate. Mm, okay. So you might think if there's no indeterminacy, then there's no free will. This is a certain type of view about free will called incompatibilism. And in that sense, I think he does not have that kind of incompatibilist free will on this picture. But there is another sense of free will that he might have, which is sometimes called compatibilist free will. Basically, that is um, the kind of freedom that you can have when your action uh, flows from who you are as a person. So uh, take, for instance, somebody who um, you know, decides one day to rob a bank and then they go and rob a bank. You might think, well, that action was free as compared with someone whose family is held hostage and they're forced to rob a bank. Mm -hmm. their, their choice to rob a bank is not flowing from who they are as a person, but it's being put, they're being put in under a circumstance. Exactly. Yeah. And so the sense in which the first person has free will is what's sometimes called compatibilist free will. It's free will that's compatible with, notice I didn't need to say whether there was any indeterminacy in the laws or you know, that kind of thing. This, this is a kind of free will that's compatible with there being no indeterminacy um, and no sense in which, um, um, well, yeah. And, uh, and nonetheless, we would still, I think, talk about them as having freedom and we would, and the, that, that sense of freedom dovetails with how we feel towards these two people. In the one case, we feel that person is deserving of punishment and so on and, and, and resentment and that kind of thing. But the other person who was doing this under duress, we don't feel that way about mm -hmm. them. We, we treat them very differently. Um, and so that's a sense of freedom that is compatible with sense of freedom that these characters, including Neil, can have. So you could say, well, yeah, he, he in some sense doesn't have to do it. it it, that he will do it will be it's out like of who he is. is who he is as a person. I see. Right. Okay. Um, as opposed to, say, Kat, who doesn't have that freedom to um, leave Sator because he has put her in a situation uh, whereby he's holding, holding her and her child hostage. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so another thing that you get out of this picture is when you see the block universe from the atemporal perspective, there's a symmetry in the laws of nature. The laws of nature can, picking any point in time, can um, extra be extrapolated backwards to, to predict what's going, what would happen in the past and extrapolated forwards to predict what will happen in the future. So you might think then, then the, the universe is, is, in a sense, from a certain perspective, completely symmetrical. But it turns out that it's not entirely symmetrical. And that's because entropy only seems to flow in one direction. So entropy, by, by that I mean, is that um, there seems to be an increase in the amount of entropy in one direction. So if you were a god looking at the universe, you would see there's an interesting asymmetry. There's a kind of left and right to the universe that is built into the direction to, with which entropy increases. 
So for instance, you're going to see when you, when you trace your finger, so to speak, left to right along the block universe, what you'll see is things like cups breaking and you'll see gases, you know, um, filling rooms, expanding into rooms. Jam getting stirred in and turning something pink and exactly. not the other way around. Exactly. Yeah, to to, I mean, we should should reread Thomas Stoppard's Ar Arcadia at some point. Yeah. So, okay. But that's it. But <laughs> Arcadia, you, yeah. But, and if you trace right to left, what you see is, is those processes reverse. Yes. Right. So there is this kind of asymmetry in the entropic state of the universe. And that's this asymmetry and entropy that uh, many people think could provide a basis for the direction of time. And that's the thing Nolan is working with. So this idea of um, the, uh, of Sator's ultimate plan to, I mean, of the people in the future's ultimate plan to, to reverse that direction of entropy, that's what they're talking about is, is just to basically flip that arrow. So now suddenly those entropic processes work right to left rather than left to right, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, here's a question though, um, and then this is related to this big, you know, ultimate plan of Sator's is you might wonder how these, these dead drops work for Sator. And this is something we talked about. Yeah, that mic. broke my brain for a second. Um, so, <laughs> so, cause you might wonder like, um, well, how does it work that you in the future could communicate something to yourself in the past? Like you might want to say, communicate like a stock tip, or you might want to give yourself in the past gold that you've, you know, that you've got in the future. So how do you do it? Well, what Sator does is he inverts whatever it is, the message, the gold or whatever, then he buries it in a place where he knows no one's going to dig it up between when he got it in the past and when he buries it in the future. So between, say, T1 in the past and T100 in the future. Then in T1, he, or I mean, I don't know, he goes back or he somehow communicates to himself, that's the place to, pick, to, to dig it up. He digs it up and he finds it. And of course, before T1, it wasn't there because he, it was moving backwards from T100 to T1. Yeah. There was nothing there before T1 because he got there to intercept it, so to speak. Yep. Um, and so that's how these drops work. Um, this is what I mean, though, when I said Sator must be like an incredibly organized person. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Yeah. You got to know where all the drops are. <laughs> that, yes. In a different time. It's amazing. Yeah. It's really astounding. He's got a lot going on and he has time to psychologically torture his wife. Like how many hours in the day does Sator have? <laughs> <laughs> it's cut a lot because he can keep reliving the same day over and over right. again. Right. <laughs> um, but but here but here's there's the difference because since entropy is working in one direction, getting something in the past to the future um, uh, is a different situation. So suppose you want to get this algorithm, your Sator, you want to get the algorithm from the where you are in I don't know 2020, let's say, to the people in the future in say 2050. Well, his plan is ostensibly to bury the algorithm in this Stalsk, Stalsk 12. 12 and then they dig it up 50 years later or 30 years right. later or whatever. but it will like have always been there or uh, not always been there yes it will have been it will have always been there in that period of time be so between 2020 when he buries it and 2050 it will just be sitting there but the but then here's a question like the the heroes know the protagonists know that's what he's doing mm -hmm. so like even if they don't succeed in can they just dig it up like I, there's like a lot of time between <laughs> 2020 and 2050 let's say 
where you could just go and dig it up and like steal it. I, I don't, I don't really know. Well, what the plan okay, but was. then there's like this thing about when, when um, Sator dies, it like sort of signals immediately to the future yes. that it's there, and there's no time between that when Sator dies and when they're able to dig it back up again. Then the future will be able to get. I see. To so it. you're thinking the future people sort of they know that it's going to be there in 2020, so they come back, they invert themselves back to that point, and then they just dig it up immediately after he does the signal. No, I wasn't thinking that. Because <laughs> what I'm worried about is that there's a lag between when they right. get it and when he when he buries it. And mm -hmm. anytime in that leg, somebody could come and just grab it. And anyone who knows it's there could just could just grab it unless he's like protecting it or something. Okay, so that's one question. Okay. I'm not sure. Yeah, my brain hurts because I, it, okay, like even if there's just like a five minute gap between when Sator dies and it comes together mm -hmm. and Sator's like, it's together, future people come get like, by the way, it's buried there. Wouldn't that sort of like signal mean that future people can like immediately get it? Sure, like his, we don't know how his signal works. Yeah, I don't understand. So the this, way his like, signal works is it could be like, it's like a an email, they say it's like an email bomb or something. An email right? bomb. So it's something like it just is timed to go off in the future at you know a certain time, right? It's like an email that gets scheduled and then is sent in the future. So that can be oh, effectively instantaneous. That's yes. fine. But then they have to know, and maybe this is what you're saying, then they have to say, okay, so that email bomb was sent let's say to January 6, 2020. Let's suppose that's when he did it. So then they say, okay, we got to go back to Jan 6, 2020 and go grab this thing. Uh -huh. That's what they would do. I see. Yeah, so that makes sense. Okay, okay, that makes sense. Fine. But they don't have time machines. Is somebody's having to go like just invert themselves for 20 years yeah. or whatever? Yeah, Ugh. yeah that's what, what they would a, do. What a nasty job. Yeah, that's what they would do. And then and then that's why I think he's also thinking right, they're going to no get the algorithm. Right, because no 20 minutes later, 20 years later, it's still actually yeah, exactly. physically They just go back and get there. it. Yeah, they go back and get it. And then they just use it right then. That's but why see, I think he I, thinks it's going to happen instantly that the like they're going to just grab it right then use it and yeah. everything goes to shit. Right, that's what I was going to yeah, ask because yeah, yeah. they're like, if the algorithm's together, then like, boom, everybody dies yes. instantaneously is what they said. Not well, everybody dies, you know, like in 20 years. <laughs> yeah, guess, yeah, yeah. It doesn't take time. Yeah. Right. No, but this is the other thing that's relevant to what John David Washington says is that we already know that the world continues in the standard entropy way after that scene, this Dolls 12 scene and the Vietnam boat scene. Be why? Because the most of the movie has already taken place in that period of time. Right. So we already know the, the universe doesn't stop then or whatever. The, the universe doesn't end then. So in a way, you know, we already know that Sator is going to fail. Mm -hmm. At least in this regard. I mean, maybe later this will change. The things will change. But, but right in for what he thinks is going to happen, namely the world's going to end right there. It's, we already know it's not going to end right there. And right. Because he has gone on to do other things. And that's right. the way the block universe works. It's always been right. that way. Even if Sator does not go on because he is dead at this point. Yeah, well, he, he's going to die at that point. Yeah. But, but the, that other Sator, who is the one who's going to eventually come live back. for and one Luke, more week. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. He's still yeah, going to live for a week. he's still live for a week. For, yeah, so exactly. you might think that, okay, so if you think of it that way, you might think, well, then this movie's boring because the end <laughs> is a sort of foregone conclusion. We already know that they can, he can't succeed. But I think what's interesting is that there's still a fun in playing out the role that you already know is going to happen. And if you think about it, what is that like? It's a little bit like being an actor. You know how the script ends. You know the arc of your character. And in particular, if you're a stage actor or mm -hmm. something, you've played the part a hundred times. 
but there's still a fun in playing out the role that's been assigned to you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe it's a little bit different each time or also maybe it's just fun going through it with an audience, right? Revisiting the same scene again with an audience. It's a little bit like maybe the fun of what it's like for a director to screen his movie for people, right? You know how it's going to end, but still it's fun to go through it with the go on that adventure with another group of people and have them experience it for the first time. So I think there is this kind of unsurprisingly perhaps this kind of meta reflective element of the nolan um mm. yeah of, of this movie a little bit like inception um where he is playing out the this idea of um the movie itself as embodying the tenets of for him for filmmaking or as for exhibiting the film and this is also something that nolan talked about in the the book with tom shown he talks about how film itself was the first time i mean with photography but then also with moving pictures the first time that humans were able to capture time and and manipulate it mm-hmm. and you get to see you know there there are a couple ways we do this with with moving pictures right we can speed it up we so we can have fast motion we can have slow motion and we can reverse and we have cuts too so you there's this manipulation of time that you get with movie making that mirrors the manipulation of time that the characters are engaging in tenet right mm-hmm. where and that is borne out in that the the special effects in this movie are all basically just them filming people walking backwards and people walking forwards and interacting. That's basically the whole special effect. And it's kind of, it's super analog and, and, and simplistic. Was we were going for a walk the other day and Justin was like, do you know how they did that scene where John Washington steps in a puddle? And I was like, uh, I think I do. And Justin's like, they just had him step in a puddle. And I, was, <laughs> I was like, yeah. <laughs> Justin's like, it's so cool. It's very cool, though. It just looks really cool to watching a puddle step in reverse. <laughs> it is very, it's very surreal. It's very yeah. cool. I'm with Kat, though. The birds are weird. That's the birds like are really crazy weird. to watch. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's so simple. It's yeah. so simple. And yet, you know, we, without film, would never be you able to see it. such an ex- thing. And, and that was the thing he was getting at is that, like, you know, like in Memento, the movie plays backwards, but you might have, you could have done Memento as a story. Mm-hmm. You know, very easily, just chapter to chapter is a new scene. And but every chapter plays forwards. It's just that the next chapter comes before the one you just read. And you could do that in a story, but you could not you cannot do what he's doing in this movie in any other medium. Yeah. It doesn't make sense. We Our minds, you can't do it in the audio format because you take the words we're saying and reverse it. It's not going to work. No. One. Um, you can't do it in literary format because reading backwards doesn't have that effect. Um, it's only in the visual format that it allows you to do it. Um, and to a certain extent in the in the musical format as well. Um, and uh, so I think this is really cool. And I can sort of see where Nolan is coming from, where he sort of thought this movie is kind of, um, you know, the movie that will get people back at theaters because it's it's the, you know, really shows the power of filmmaking, what mm-hmm. filmmaking can offer people. Um, that no other me- form of media can. And, you know, I think that's kind of cool. It's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of movies that are brilliantly filmed and visually striking that don't have like a compelling narrative. Um, and maybe some people think that about Tenet just because it's so complicated. But, mm. you know, we just we watched a Terrence Malick movie the other day. It's gorgeous. But, you know, the narrative part of it is a little fuzzy <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't grip you you a know movie that whose name shall not be revealed <laughs> we won't say one which, of one of us liked it we won't say which twirly it was uh, <laughs> but 
you know, but like this movie is like incredibly visually striking, incredibly, um, you know, in the and everything about it is intrinsic to the medium of film. And also it's like a cool story. Yeah. All right. So we're nearing the end of the episode. And um, I think we just want to go over our favorite lines and then. Yeah, um, sure. And then we'll end. Favorite characters. Favorite oh, lines. Okay. Yeah. Favorite characters. Uh, well, you 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 had a tie between um, between two supporting guys. Oh my gosh! Yeah, I don't know if it's if it's ATJ, aka Aaron Taylor Johnson, or Ives, <laughs> Ives, or um, Himish Patel. Himish Patel Mahir is his character's mm-hmm. name. Now I've got a, now I've got IMDb. I you like those really guys? Oh my god! I think it. I think on the third watch, Himish Patel lapped ATJ. Really? Yeah, yeah. He's I mean like, the the vegetarian thing is pretty funny. The vegetarian, I just he's just, just the way he delivers it. He's sassy. Yeah. I don't know, like even like when he's timing his breath and and you know Pattinson's kind of cocking. He's like forty five seconds ample, and him and he was just like, "You're gonna be running." <laughs> <laughs> that's a good yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. I just think everything about it. I just like his energy. He's mm-hmm. just so. I mean, everybody in this movie is blasé about what they're doing. Yeah. It's and and like bored slash irritated, which is a is a funny vibe. I like it a lot. But um, yeah, Mahir is maybe my favorite uh, bit character. Only got a few lines, only got a few scenes, but he really he works it. Mm. Yeah, uh, I'm, that's good for me. Is it I ATJ mean, for you? I, I do like ATJ. I mean, because here's he's a, a bit of a legend in the Nettle game. Yeah, it's because he's a legend in the Nettle game. Um, <laughs> uh, here, here's a couple lines from him that I really like. So the, it's a, this is during the briefing. The soldier says they'll have inverse ordinance and, and Ives goes. These buildings are abandoned, but we learned there is a turnstile. Respect the bitemporal response. They'll have inverse ordinance. Inverse conventional. Board antagonists and bird antagonists, they have it. Wow, that's what he said. Because on the, even on the third time I heard, and then here's another part from the same scene. Our job is to fail to defuse that bomb while the splinter unit achieves its task undetected. Which is? Need to know and you're done. Any other stupid questions? Good, we'll discuss. Let's get ready. Right, let's get ready. You don't. <laughs> least, any other stupid questions? I, I mean, like that, it is like little... an inverted phrase too. Like, you don't need to know. Need to know you, you don't. Yeah, you don't. Yeah, but I also like that Um, it, it's a little bit like, I'm trying to stay away from meta stuff here, but it's a little bit like Nolan being like, just just go with it, motherfuckers. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm giving you the shit, but you're not going to get You know it. what irks me about that scene is that his markers out of ink. Yeah. It drives yeah, me no. nuts. I know. Um, <laughs> the movie's confusing I, enough as it is let me give you one more Ives line from the same scene I mean this is an all star scene honestly <laughs> the scene fucking rules here's another one so okay this is when so like they they break off right he's done the briefing they break off and now protagonist goes up to Ives and he's like I wanted to be in the first wave and Ives like there is no first wave red team and blue team operate simultaneously but don't get on the chopper if you can't stop thinking in linear terms now you want to be on the team that lifts the contents of the capsule absolutely yeah, that's us. We're you. Oh, yeah. I know. <laughs> <laughs> he's just fucking, he's annoyed by him. He's just like, just, he's annoyed by him the whole time. Yeah. When he first meets him, he's like, cowboy shit. Like, he's yeah. just like, oh, I got to explain to this guy. Well, he guy. also went, because at that point, like, da- like uh, John David has got a uh, Neil up against, you know, Pattinson up against the wall. He's like, somebody talked, somebody talked. And then, and then Ives comes in real quiet. He's like, nobody talked. They're running a tempo pincer movement. Not in space, but in time. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> yeah. It's Can I stuff, ask a man. question? Good so stuff. you know how Neil knows that he's the founder of Tenet? Yeah. Does Ives know who he is? Yeah. Because he's, I would think not. Okay. I would think not he doesn't act like he does. Because again, it's because uh, they never are supposed to meet ever again. Remember the end, they right. break up the algorithm and they're not supposed to know. Okay. So, so I he think, doesn't know this guy's kind of his boss. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, he, but that explains it, right? Like, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> here, uh, here are a couple other fun lines. Um, uh, I mean, the classic protagonist, I ordered my hot sauce an hour ago. That's a great line. Come on. That's such a funny <laughs> line. And it, it, you know, John David has such charisma that he just delivers that line and it's not a line you would have ever expected in a Nolan film. I love more that like line. an 80s action movie oh, vibe. so good. Yeah. Uh, I think my favorite Sator line is um, after he's beaten a dude with a gold bar, like beaten him bloody, he go, he looks at his, checks his pulse and he goes, 98, not so bad for such exertion. <laughs> That is true, though. I get like barely going on the bike, and my my heart rate is way higher for ninety-eight. He's checking his pulse after he beat the shit out of some guy. (laughs) Oh man! And then here's another line I really like. Uh, So, cats like who are you? And Neil sits down. He's like, "We'll start with the simple stuff. Every law of physics." (laughs) And then just cuts. Well, they had a whole week, you know, so it's great (laughs) on Um, the third day. He's like chapter three. (laughs) Yeah. And then just just to get back though, more seriously, just to get back to like one, you know, the friendship part. And and at the end of the movie that the friendship is really developed between John David and and Panson. And and but the part what really gets me every time I really love is is right after they've done the inverted go through the um, uh, the the 747 crash and they get on the other side and. Um, and, and, you know, he's, he's basically, and John David is like, why didn't you tell me that that was me? You came to the turnstile. And he's like, look, some, you didn't need to know you were going to like blow your, kill yourself at that time. It just wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have been good. And he says, our policy is to suppress. And, um, protagonist says, whose policy? And then Neil says, ours, my friend, we're the people saving the world from what might've been. And they're like, high five. And it's just one of these moments he keeps, he always calls him my friend. And I feel like Pattinson just delivers that in such a. It's such a earnest and mm. loving way. Uh, and I just find it, um, I don't know, maybe I just like when people say my friend. I think it's like a nice thing. It and it's nice. kind of like antiquated. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I find that very like endearing. And mm-hmm. um, I think that's the part where they the, the friendship has really been kindled. Um, and um, I really love that line. Yeah. It's fun too because, you know, like it's cool to watch people do their job really well and like be really you know just sort of almost like blase about it that is a certain kind of cool right like walking away from a explosion like with no emotion and this movie everybody's doing really cool stuff and just sort of being like it's a tuesday yeah you know um but it but you also like want to see a little bit of celebration yeah (laughs) my only note for this movie if we were going to make it like three and a half hours instead of two and a half hours is that i wanted more neil and protagonists like making the plans for their various heists You know, you get like tiny little snippets of it. The protagonist being like, we need four cars. One needs to look, yeah. you know, what? We need get a fire a truck. We need a, a fire truck, an 18 <laughs> wheeler that can't be the same. You know, you know, he's like, but they're just sort of on the go and, and no one cuts it together so fast because there's really not time yeah. for it. Um, but I, I would love that. I would yeah. love more the like buddy cop, 
heist movie vibe. Yeah. Um, and more time for, for you know, Robert Pattinson to, to play in that pool. Yeah, I agree. No, that'd be nice. That reminds me of uh, one other aspect that you were, you were mentioning before, which is how everyone's so blasé about everything. Yeah. And I, <laughs> I was thinking that, like, that is the natural reaction of someone who has gone through the same event four, five, six times, yes. right? Yeah, yeah, Because yeah. the whole movie is people doing temporal pincers, right? So, like, seeing what happens and then being like, yeah, okay, that was me helping myself then. So, I, that means I'm going to have to go invert and go back through this and do this and that to make sure that it always was that way, right? And you see this at the end where there, it's solemn, where Neil realizes that it was him back in, in the uh, mine saving the protagonist's life getting shot he doesn't know he's going to get shot in the head the protagonist knows but he doesn't know but he's like ah that was me back in there because i was the one who picked the lock and then he then protagonist knows that he's going to get killed um and he, but neil's just sort of like well just gotta thread another stitch in the fabric of the uh of the mission or whatever and and that's just the this sort of attitude of like yeah we're just kind of re tracing our steps again and again and again and so yeah you might be a little bored you're like i've seen it i've been there a couple times <laughs> yeah Just doing it over and over again temporal pincer is cool but at its core it's replaying something and mm. you know replaying things in a way boring <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah and every i think you and i were talking about this earlier but like every time they temporal pincer they're sort of like adding more to their to-do list yeah you know because they see things that have to have always happened yeah and they, so but like, they well, have to make them have always it. happened i yeah. gotta go back and do it now yeah <laughs> so that's it that's tenet we we like this movie a lot we hope that you know this episode gave you something to think about um we're curious if you have thoughts about tenet tweet at us at uh, cow's pod we're team tenet in case you haven't we're noticed. team tenet we're we're are you red room or blue room though that's the real question <laughs> Um, red room i don't care blue's so confusing blue's too confusing <laughs> i want to be in the blue room um you can find us online at cowspod.wordpress.com as i said we're at cowspod on twitter um uh please if you enjoy listening to us um leave us a review on apple podcasts and a rating um and we look forward to the next episode, which won't be a bonus episode because this is sneaking in. This is pincering in between the conversation and um, Groundhog Day. But the next episode will be Groundhog Day with um, uh, with Kieran Satya. So look forward to that. And um, I think that's it for this one, right? Yeah. Interior, turnstile, Talon Freeport. If you're not telling the truth, she dies. I don't know what you're talking about. You left it in the car, not the fire truck, right? Who told you that? Tell me now. Is it really in the BMW? I don't know. Tell me or I'll shoot her again. Leave her alone. I don't have time to negotiate. Listen to me. I can help you. Three. Don't. Two. <laughs> Wait. One. <laughs> Sorry. Can you fix this? Line. Okay. <laughs> no. Bang. Shoots through Cat's side.
Next one, the bullet to the head. One. Please. Two. No. Three. Okay, okay, the car, the BMW. I left it in the BMW. We're going to check that this is real. It's in the glove box. Scene. Okay, do you want me to do it again? Yeah, well, no, I, this is fun. This is fun. This okay. is going at the end of the episode. <laughs> okay. All right, here we go. Now we're going to go <clears throat> in reverse. Okay, now the, now the entire scene will play in reverse. Okay. It's in the glove box. We're going to check this is real. Okay, okay, the car, the BMW. I left it in the BMW. Three. No. Two. Please. One. No. Next one's a bullet to the head. Bang. <laughs> I can't One. fast enough. Wait. Two. Now I'm like don't. lost. Don't. Three. Listen to me, I can help you. I don't have time to negotiate. Leave her alone. Tell... Tell me or I'll shoot her again. I don't know. Tell me now. Is it really in the BMW? I don't know what you're talking about. Who told you that? You left it in the car, not the fire truck, right? I don't know what you're talking about. If you're not telling the truth, she dies. Scene. Do you want me to do it again? No, it's fine. That's <laughs> <not> fine. <laughs> it's perfectly fine. <laughs> <laughs>